I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. You become attached to these books after a while, particularly, oddly, the books that don't sell. You grow familiar with them and then they betray you. People love rare things, but often rarity has no inherent value. But rare objects can make us feel powerful, unique or worthy and spark joy in a way that cannot possibly be explained. It's inexplicable because many who seek rarity don't do it for show. Collectors often hoard their prized possessions, not for the sake of vanity, but just for personal pleasure. While many of us hang on to talismans or objects of sentimental importance that may bring luck or inspire fond memories, these items are often viewed largely as worthless to the outside world. But for collectors, say, interested in the world of rare books, sentimentality isn't always enough. Sometimes a book needs to be viewed as worthy by others. For that reason, monetary value can be of utmost importance. And equally, the book must have its own unique and compelling story, not the words behind the spine and in between the covers, but the life that it's led. Once Upon a Tome is a fascinating insight into the world of rare books, and I'm delighted to say that its author, Oliver Darkshire, is my guest today. Chapter 1. Smaugs and Draculas. Established in 1761 on Sackville Street in London, Henry Sutherland Limited is a rare thing itself, one of the world's oldest antiquarian bookshops, a relic of a time long past, home to books worth hundreds if not thousands of pounds, which against all odds still find relevance in today's modern and electronic world. Oliver first stepped through the doors of the bookshop, not expecting to stay long, but the allure and the smell of the old dusty books was too enticing an unexpected turn for a now accidental bookseller. And his work, creating a very well-followed Twitter account for the store, led him to become an accidental book writer as well. One accident led to another, I think, really. Um, I think a lot of my colleagues who work in the books are with me all say that they fell into rare books rather unintentionally. So it seems rather elegant that I should fall into writing a book the same way, almost. <laughs> and as I understand it from the from the author's note you put in, you initially, when you were approached about writing a book, didn't you call the didn't you accuse the publisher of being a fraud? I did. Um, the, the, so the, the agent that represents me now, he approached me through our Twitter account, which I run for the store. And it didn't seem plausible to me at the time that he would be anything other than a crook. So I may or may not have <laughs> accused him of something along those lines. Um, had to do, he had to be very convincing to convince me to, to stop producing a manuscript. But he was very persistent. So it paid off him, clearly. No, it, it, it has done. We'll talk about Twitter and we'll certainly talk about frauds or thieves um, when we talk about the customers. But I want to, let's start with Sutherlands itself. There is something about it, the way you talk about it, that to me, feels so disconnected to the modern world as we understand it in terms of commerce. If you were setting up a business from scratch, you, you, you might you might not do it the Southerners way. It seems to be, you know, when you can order things at the click of a the click of a mouse or at the stroke of a keyboard to physically go 
into Sutherland's feels new and different, even though it's been around for ages. But there's something about the space, isn't there? I've never been in, but I can imagine that silence has never been louder than in a space like Sutherland's. Something about the the acoustics of a rare bookstore. I don't know whether it's the or the pages or the leather or something, but um, the way the books line the store muffles the noise, which for London, particularly Piccadilly, where there's vehicles left, right, and centre, horns tooting all, all day, it's quite important, I suppose. Um, it divorces the space from everything that's happening outside it, which when you're trying to persuade people to part with a lot of money for very rare books is <laughs> quite important not to be distracted, maybe. But it does make it its own little, its own little world, its own little fishbowl environment isolated from everything that's happening outside it it does feel like stepping into an entirely new entirely new environment and it's not just the bookshop itself it's the books themselves that feel like characters in their own right you you could spend decades with these books couldn't you and and probably have done or at least some of the the people that work there probably have done is it is there a moment of sadness when a book that you've lived with for a long period of time actually has the audacity to go and get bought by someone and then needs <laughs> to start its new life. You become attached. You, be- you become attached to these books after a while, particularly, oddly, the books that don't sell. So the ones that you have a sort of personal grudge with at the start when you buy them and think everyone should love them and they don't. You feel rather betrayed by them, so you put them on a shelf. And every year you come back to them and check they're still there. You grow familiar with them. And then they betray you, eventually, by walking off um, after 20 years at its own little... um narrative arc really if you grow attached to them you know friends to lovers and then eventually they they wander off into the dark with a holding hands with someone else it's all very tragic i know they just cheat Um. on you at a moment's notice (laughs) (laughs) um you talk with with wonderful description about the people who buy the books the customers we should shouldn't forget that sutherland's is a business and it's in the business of selling books to punters but you have categorized customers down to two broad categories which i which i'm i'm really interested in i wonder if we could spend some time here we have smaugs and we have draculas just just give us a sense as to as to what those two categories mean so yeah i kind of broadly define them in into two vague archetypes based on the kind of but almost based on how they buy books so smaugs um like the dragon in the hobbit I tend to find they, they're a customer who sits on a large hoard of books at home. They have wide-ranging interests. They'll pick up almost anything that looks attractive to them, whether it's because it's pretty or because it's expensive or because it, you know, it, it just happens to pique their interest. You can sell them anything that they that you think is interesting in, in, in its own right, if you see what I mean. So you can't really go wrong <laughs> with the smile. If you think it's interesting, you might as well offer it to them because they might add it to their, um, to their hoard. On the other hand, you have Draculas. You have a very specific, almost, um, almost an obsession with one very specific area of book collecting. So whether it's a study of plants, whether it's um, they like children's books from a certain period, whether it's certain kind of furniture, and you have to hunt down very specific objects for them to fill the gaps in their collection or to try and extend their collection outwards a little. And you have those very two different kinds of people, all of whom are looking to collect. So knowing the difference when you're trying to sell them something is imperative. If you sell the wrong, offer the wrong thing to a Dracula, they'll be offended that you don't know their taste well enough. And if we don't offer exciting enough things to a smile, then they will go somewhere else you can. It's such a fine line, though, isn't it? Because I, I get the impression that Dracula's, there was some pretty tenuous links to what a Dracula <laughs> was interested in that you were trying to sell. And sometimes it works and, so, and sometimes you will miss. But you can almost convince a Dracula that there is a link back to the one thing that they like, even though 
it might be a fleeting reference on page 380 of a 500 page tome, right? Yes, but therein lies the conundrum in that when you're, you know, you have a lot of time and maybe a lot of resources and a lot of sort of um, to collect, develop your own collection about something very specific, like a certain type of plant, you will buy the obvious things eventually. And so when you go back to the bookstore and say, I'd like something else, you have to start finding these very odd, thin connections back to the subject that are convincing enough that it's part of their collection, but not so tenuous that they'll say, you're having me, you're having me on, try again yeah. later. It does become a game in a, in a way between you and the Well, well on that, you're right, because I get the impression that, it, that it, it, often it sounds like a game. It's almost as if Southerns and the people that work there would be blissfully happy if no customers ever came in <laughs> and i think the customers might have felt the same it's i get the i get the sense oliver that this is quite an uneasy relationship you both seem to need each other but not want to be with each other is that fair it's very it's very strange it's you know the customers obviously would rather have the books magically appear in their houses i feel um <laughs> which i empathize with um and you know as, as, a, as a bookseller you a lot of the time you want to spend a lot of time cataloging the books and when they leave you it feels uh, like a betrayal so between the two of you, you have this relationship where you but we rely on each other and you come to understand each other. You develop relationships with these people. But um, underlying it, there's that kind of tension where you know that obviously they're looking to buy the books that you'd rather keep and um, they want to get them for a good price. And there's, there's a lot of, sort of sort of fun tension there, which I think provides a, for an amusing day-to-day experience, I think. Chapter 2. Acquiring the Tomes. If you've ever watched the Antiques Roadshow, you'll have surely wondered whether there's a priceless artefact sitting up in your own loft or in one of the nooks and crannies in your complete mess of a spare room. You may have even speculated over the value of a piece of crockery you own, certain that it's worth fortune, mostly as a reason to hold on to when your partner insists on decluttering the house and maybe even decluttering you. Many of us find it hard to let go of our things, our stuff, the bits we've collected intentionally and unintentionally. There are many ways that rare books make it to Southerns, one of which is from private collections. And in this scenario, it can very often feel as though the owners are being forced apart with their wares, with feelings of resentment and grief being palpable. I mean, I think people, if we come back to this theme of books as characters and as people, Mm. I mean, these collectors feel like they have accrued or put together this cast of characters in one place. These friends who they have grown to know in a certain order, in a certain place, in a certain time, for sometimes over decades, you know, from when they were young. Um, and they get to the stage in their life where obviously um, they have need to move rooms or houses or they just need a space or they want to make a new collection. And when it comes down to the line, you see them looking at these books <laughs> in their hands as if they're saying goodbye to a real person. You know, um, and it is, I think it's very real for them. It evokes a lot of strong emotions. Um, you know, it makes you feel a certain sense of responsibility as well towards finding the books a new home or looking after them at the very least because somebody really cared about them. Yeah, there, there is something about a nice book. You talked about the leather and what that does to sound, but it also, you know, you do write for all all the senses because I can I can smell the book, I can feel it in my hands even though it may be backed with something unspeakable and and now presumably illegal. But you also talk about the second way that you acquire books is by this incredible subculture of book runners, which I had never heard about before. I'd love to get your perspective on that, because that for me is 
I mean, it's tantamount to drug running. You know, these people come <laughs> in with this contraband and try and illicitly sell it to you. But this is a real thing, isn't it? Book runners are very, very they're all over the place, according to according to this book. The world of rare books is full of people turning up, you know, almost Del Boy like with a suitcase and going, you know, want to buy a book, mate. It's part of the lifeblood of a system and it's completely organic. That as I say in the book, there's no way they are organized. There's no affiliation. There's no trade, you know, dress or anything to them. These things seem to, around bookstores, people turn up who want to make a profit from old books. They realize that as we're static in place at the bookstore and there's only so many of us to run around and look at collections, that there is just, there's a gap in the internal tiny little market there for someone to go and find odd things in other parts of the country that we can't reach and bring them to us and make a profit. And they just spring up like mushrooms um, out of nowhere. They're fantastic people. They, they have to have a real insight for the material. They have to take a gamble, which means obviously only the successful ones make a long career out of it. And they will just, they'll have a hunch. They'll go to sort of the back end of nowhere, pick out our five things they think they can sell to us, bring them down to London, <laughs> you know, and make a tiny sum. There is serious endeavour in this because, yes, I imagine there are plenty of old rare books shops in London, but presumably they have to travel all over the country to both acquire these and then to try and sell them. It's a full-time occupation, isn't it? Well, it is, and you have to show them in some ways that you that you that you appreciate them because they could take their books elsewhere, um, and you do not have the time to run down to Cornwall and and look through a lot of these bookstores. They they travel a lot and carrying a lot of heady things. I mean, I mean, this is the rub the rub of it really. A lot of book selling is in the feeling and the looking at the physical object itself, which is difficult to do remotely a lot of the time, particularly for a bookseller that prides itself on having accurate versions of what you get in stock and making sure it's all complete. Looking at it is really important. So the fact that they can go to somewhere far off and are willing to bring it to us physically for us to look at is an invaluable kind of service. Um, Talking of the descriptions of the book, I, I love it when you, you talk about how you might categorize and then catalog these books. You're also, you're basically making the trailer of the film, you know, by, by <laughs> writing down what a book is. And, and very often that description will bear absolutely zero relevance to the physical state of the book or indeed the content the contents of it it's quite an art isn't it and i got the impression that you and your colleagues disagreed vehemently often about about how to describe a certain tone well people people do it it's its own art form in a way I mean, there's there's two parts of the description of a book really there's the kind of physical description of it where you have to try and describe it as nicely as possible while still being true to what it is in the right terminology which requires a lot of byzantine words and phrases that don't make a lot of sense unless you're immersed in the book trade. You have to look all the words up and then have your own interpretation of what they mean. A bit like you know, reading tarot cards, it's all in the interpretation. Um, and then there's the, you, you sort of have to do a spiel as well to then sell the book itself for what it is. So there's, you know, merging those together, you then have a, a book catalogue description. Um, but people do fiercely disagree about what the actual terminology means, you know. Um, if you say a book's in, in very good condition, that means a very specific list of possible things <laughs> it sounds like a very well, vague, vague read, but if you if, if i send a book to someone and say it's very good and it's got certain flaws to it they will send it back to me and say that's not what very good means <laughs> like it's a it's an expectation that you're au fait with the various possible things that phrase could mean and that you've at least sort of got it in the right ballpark it's almost as if very good or the phrase very good means it's allowed to have the following things wrong with it yes. as long as you know <laughs> As long as you can, as long as you can speak bookseller, you'll be all right. In essence, yes. I mean, if you call a book good, you might as well throw it away in some cases. 
<laughs> the difference in the very and the good, you know, and if you call something a reading copy, I was almost thrown out for calling something a reading copy, implying that it is basically only good to read. It's so torn apart that you could only get the words out of it. It's fascinating. And sort of the more, the more you learn, the more sort of the more intricate it gets. I think there's ever a point where you stop finding new intricacies or nuances to it. And on that, talk about finding new things. You, you talk at the beginning of the book about this. You, you start off with this bizarre apprenticeship that pays very little and you spend pretty much your entire life in in this store. We know as writers the notion of or the trope of the first day on the job. I got the impression that you could turn up at Sutherland's every day and it would be like it was the first day on the job. I, I, I never got the sense that you could fully crack this world. It would always be different. There's always something to learn, isn't there? Every single day someone walks in with something I don't want to see. And a few things that I do, um, and you have to be prepared for the fact that when you're in a bookstore with a customer-facing role like that. I mean, I'm going to wax lyrical for a second because it's something I'm really interested in. But the fact that an antiquarian bookstore that sits on the almost the high street almost and has a... Because anyone can walk in and see you. You're in that strange liminal space between a customer service person who sits at a, you know, uh, who processes sales and also an expert. People people see you as the kind of expert that's accessible they can get instant access to. So people will bring you all sorts of things, even if they're not necessarily related to books or antiquarian things. They'll bring in objects for you to see because you're one of the only people that... I mean, a lot of experts are, are, are ring-fenced behind institutions like librarians or archivists where they you, know, you have a certain bar to meet before you can access them. Antiquarian booksellers are some of the only people that you can just walk in off the street and show things to. <laughs> um, which makes for, as I say, day-to-day, interesting experiences. Chapter 3. Cabinet of Curiosities. In Series 2 of this podcast, we spoke to Tristram Hunt, Director of London's Victoria and Albert Museum, about his book, The Lives of the Objects. He talked about the fact that we often view objects at two points in their existence, the point at which they came into being, and then when they came into our possession. But what we forget is the storied lives they lead in between those two points. The point of of, of that book, of the the lives of the objects, was to unpick the, the kind of multiple lives and identities that objects could have in many hands over many centuries in, in many countries and how those meanings are shaped and then reshaped and objects change the identity of objects change and the meanings of objects change to different people Sutherland's is littered with the most bizarre collection of stuffed animals paintings engravings and all manner of strange antiquities and there's a story behind each and every one And just like the books, there's almost a moral obligation to preserve these things, a responsibility that Oliver says he felt the weight of. You do, I think, on a a day-to-day basis. Um, Something I was discussing only last week when I was was down at the store, we've ended up with, so occasionally we'll be, we're we're left a lot of books to look at by people who bring them into us to analyse, and a lot of objects too, Um, you know, cave shit like a beehive or whatever, dripping something unusual. Um... Not sure what to do with that. Um, people come in and leave things with us for us to look at them. And so we'll say, we'll look at them. And sometimes they never come back. Oh, they can't be reached or the phone line goes dead this time. And so we're not sure what's happened to them. And so we'll put them in a cupboard and they'll sit there for a few weeks and then weeks turn to months and months turn to years. And eventually you have to, you need space. So you start looking through your cupboards and uncover this kind of stratigraphy of objects that people have left over the years. And you have to decide what to do with them. 
because can you can you ethically dispose of them as they even write? If what's a really it's a nice collection of Fleming that someone left with us. It's worth a lot of money. It's just they disappeared. So what do you do? Mm. They go in a cupboard and they wait, I guess, until the end of time. We often end up in this state of paralysis over our responsibility towards a lot of these objects, you know, which could be worth something or sentimental. Um, their owners have vanished. Um, so we end up, you know, a bit like a pound almost with these <laughs> things behind bars that we can't, we don't want to get rid of or dispose of or, or move on, but also we can't use in any way. So, yeah, so you do end up with this kind of cabinet of curiosities around you over time, whether you like it or not. I wondered if you'd be willing to read a section from the book, Oliver, which really, for me, brings home the, the utter insanity of of this of this precinct, which is so well drawn. But this, of all of the passages in the book, this is the one that just made me beam with joy because it's the the sheer ludicrousness of this <laughs> of this situation that I love. I wonder if I could just get you to talk about the keys and the locks and then and then objects that go missing and, and, and what you do, if you wouldn't mind. The cases around the edge of the shop, rescued from previous incarnations of Southerns by overzealous interior designers, each have a tiny lock which secures the cases against intrusion. In fact, all the glass cases have locks, most of which are bespoke and were created by companies that no longer exist. When I was taken on a tour of the shop in my first week, I was shown two sets of keys that opened the cases. These sets looked semi-complete, and each one contained some keys that opened some of the cases. Neither keychain was identical, each had about 50 keys, and most of the keys were never used. But no one was brave enough to throw them away, in case they were needed someday. In addition to this, every desk at Sutherland's has a small collection of random keys, which presumably fit boxes, hatches and locks throughout the shop. Some of the keys were labelled, which was actually less helpful than leaving them unmarked. They would carry words like Linnaean case, because the case had once been bought from the Linnaean society, as if someone could discern the correct case from that information alone. Important keys were sometimes taken off the keychains, where they could be confused with other similar-looking keys, and hidden in completely separate locations by well-meaning members of staff. As a result, opening some of the cases remains impossible to this day, and books are inserted by opening adjacent cases to drop things through a hole on the side, or the back. I think every bookseller develops their own method of protecting the books, including locked cases, keeping all their important books at home, or never leaving their desk and taking all their meals in sight of their shelves. There was a brief period, before my time, when Sutherlands deployed an electronic tag system, supposed to set off an alarm when anyone left the shop carrying a stolen book. But from the box of unused tags I eventually found, it's clear that the effort of including one in every single book grew too onerous. I have personally developed a strategy I call Total Confusion, which is to leave all my books all over my desk, shuffled into piles of reference books, and rely on the fact that A. The average thief won't be able to tell the difference between an expensive book and garbage, and B. In a room full of locked cases, I'd like to think... Most enterprising criminals would assume that I would never be foolish enough to leave expensive things lying about in an unlocked drawer. Even after all this time, I still can't tell the approximate value of an unfamiliar book on site, so I defy a random shoplifter to figure it all out in the time it takes to pilfer something from under my nose. I am fairly convinced that it's for this reason that the books which disappear from the shop seem to be completely random, with no discernible pattern for their price or size. If a book vanishes from a prominent shelf, 
and no one can offer a reasonable explanation for where it might have gone, we tend to assume it was stolen. We are wrong about as often as we are right, with missing books appearing years later in the incorrect apartment. However, assuming the worst does mean we can stop looking for it, which lets the book find its way back to us in its own time. I absolutely adore that section. Thank you very much. And I love the notion that, of course, nothing you are looking for can ever be found. Therefore, the simplest thing to do is to stop looking for it and hey, presto, it'll turn up eventually. So logic dictates that you know, if you have put the book down in the store somewhere and nobody has taken it, it must be findable. However, Sutherland doesn't run on that kind of logic. And I like the fact that everyone who works there accepts that after a certain point, you just have to stop looking and it will turn up whenever it's ready, in its own time, probably under something you've already looked under. Everyone I know who works there just accepts this as a fact of life. Like you don't, after a certain amount of hours looking, you just give up and it will eventually manifest. It's wonderfully descriptive. I think that's an absolute joy, that section. You talk about the apprenticeship, but you also talk about the fact that it wasn't your first job. You'd had a stream of unsuccessful appointments that led up to this. But something in the early section of the book really intrigued me when you talked about you got a diagnosis for narcolepsy. And, and at first I thought that that was because the soporific nature of the bookshop was lulling you to sleep. But it's it's actually very different, is it? It's that in your previous jobs, you were very active and therefore very tired. Whereas in this, there was no real reason to be tired and therefore falling asleep. It just didn't make sense. T tell us, how did that come about? So I think everyone... Everyone in this in this world we live in is tired all the time. And for very good reasons. You know, everyone has a lot of stuff going on. And so when you say to someone, oh, I feel a bit tired, they say, that isn't that funny? Um, get back to what you were doing. And I think in a job where you're very busy and the phones are ringing all the time, you know, you have a, you have a good reason to be tired. You know, it makes sense. And you think, well, everyone else is dealing with it, Oliver. Get back to it. And that all, you know, that all checks out. When you're in a bookstore where you're asked to do one task and that task is to read a few things at two o'clock in the afternoon, if you feel like it. There's not, there wasn't really any reason to be falling asleep. And when I had the time and the space to really analyse that and go through the thought processes of something is clearly dreadfully wrong. Like it's not just an ordinary tiredness and getting enough sleep. I'm at the bookstore where they're asking me to do very little at the moment. Um, and yet somehow I'm still nodding off. Um, it gave me that space to, in to, to interrogate that um, and to go and, get some, go and get some help for it as well. Um, the store very good about giving me the time to go and get looked into. You know, and it didn't in the end transpire um, when I came out with a diagnosis of, of narcolepsy and some, and some medication for it, that there was something that could have been done. And it was only working at the bookstore in that environment, which gave me space to think about it properly, that allowed that to happen. It's fascinating. And, and the bookstore wasn't the only thing they were, they were good at. They appeared to allow you to drag them kicking and screaming online. They, they already had a Twitter account, but you, you seem to claim that as your own and, and, I mean, basically, Oliver, you create an absolute viral monster. <laughs> yeah, I've created a monster, he says, on the, you know, looking at the corpse that's created. It's, it's one of those things, accidents, that happens to me where I get involved in something and it spirals out of control. It seems to happen far too often. <laughs> um, I picked it up on a whim, really. I guess I thought that maybe there was some... I knew that it existed, and I thought that maybe I could be helpful, he thought. I thought, you know, this other one's done a lot for me. I thought maybe I could contribute to this in a way that, you know, maybe I... As inexperienced in other areas, there's something that I could. I'm familiar with. Familiar with. I'm familiar with social media, the internet. Maybe there's something I can, I can use to help promote the store. But people really bought into it in a way that I did not expect. 
Um, people love the idea of an antiquarian bookstore, and they love the idea of Sutherland's you know, being as old as it is. And it kind of spiralled out of control very quickly. So now it's its own entity, from which eventually spawned the book. And now you have this viral monster with its 40,000-plus followers to with it. able to quite happily tweet about your novel. <laughs> which is, you know, I guess um, appropriate almost. Um, <laughs> destiny, yeah, go for that. Well, it's such a beautiful precinct. It is a masterclass in the art of selling without selling. It's a love letter to books and to bookstores, and it's a world that sadly one day will no longer be with us, so we should cherish it while it is. Once Upon a Tome is out now. It's an absolute triumph. Oliver Darkshire, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Oliver Darkshire for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Remember to give life to the objects of your stories. Write them as comprehensive a backstory as that that you write for a character. Instill a sense of wonder in the items your characters possess. How would Rocky Balboa feel if you took away his black rubber ball? As inspiration for your next piece of writing, imagine the life of an object that gets left behind at a bookstore and the story of the owner who never returns. What happened to them? Why did they leave such a precious heirloom? Will that object find significance in time? And for those of you of a certain age and from the United Kingdom, you might remember the essay that everyone was made to write in school, A Day in the Life of a Pound Coin. And finally, if you have a niche interest, don't assume no one else cares about it. Oliver created the most unlikely social media sensation and got commissioned to write a book because of it. Share your oddities and curiosities with the world, and the world may just well come along for the ride. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our new exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.